Hebrews chapter 10, verses 1 through 25. For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come instead of the true form of these realities, it can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, would they have not ceased to offer would they have not would they not have ceased to be offered since the worshipers having once been cleansed would no longer have any consciousness of sins but in these sacrifices there is a reminder of sins every year for it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away Sins. Consequently, when Christ came into the world, he said, Sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sin offerings you have taken no pleasure. Then I said, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God. It is written of me in the scroll of the book. When he said above, you have neither desired nor taken pleasure in sacrifices and offerings and burnt offerings and sin offerings, these are offered according to the law, then he added, behold, I have come to do your will. He does away with the first in order to establish the second, and by that will we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifice, which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for one, for all time, a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time, those who are being sanctified. And the Holy Spirit also bears witness to us after saying, This is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my laws on their hearts and write them on their minds. Then he adds, I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. Where there is forgiveness of these, there is no longer any offering for sin. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh, and since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir one another up to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. May the Lord add his blessing to the reading and the hearing of his word. So we 
um, pick up this week from where we left off last week, obviously. And the, um, the place where we were last week, we ended talking about the first witness, the conscience. That conscience which tells all mankind that we are sinful. The conscience that tells all mankind that something needs to be done to alter who we are in some way, shape, or fashion. Some, that same conscience that everybody shares that looks around at the world and goes, things are not right. That conscience that even the great uh, philosophers who did not believe in God saw and recognized. Everybody from Bertrand Russell to Bernard Shaw agrees that the conscience looks at the world and says something is not right. So we can, with certainty, recognize that the author of Hebrews sees this conscience testifying against us that the more we try to do right on our own, the more we try to rest in our own righteousness, the worse we are, the worse we appear to be. Because conscience shows us over and over that the sacrifice needs to be done again. And how does one get a clean conscience? There's one way to get a clean conscience, to trust in Jesus Christ's righteousness for your salvation. By that I mean simply to trust that he has done what is good and has rescued you. Living a perfect life, taking the punishment for sins, and you stand before a holy and righteous and perfect God who welcomes you with open arms. Because of what Jesus Christ has done. Because of what Christ has done. So we, we ended there last week, and we're going to briefly run through verses 1 through 14. Just again, this time looking at it a little bit different. And I want you to see first the first witness, then we're going to talk about the second witness that it brings up in verse 15, the Holy Spirit. So, for since the law has but a shadow of the good things... Uh, to come instead of the true form of these realities, it can never, by the same sacrifices that are continuously offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. The purpose of the law, the purpose of telling people how to get clean momentarily, the purpose of this law is simply to point you to the greater reality of Jesus Christ. If you imagine the law as a shadow pasted against the wall, and you are bound on this world by sin, and you can see the shadow on the wall, but the light comes from behind you. And that shadow is casting a picture of Jesus Christ over and over and over. In the Old Testament, we see it constantly that there is a shadow of Jesus being cast against a wall that everyone can see. It's not hidden. Indeed, it shows up at the very beginning of the book. In chapter 3, it says, of Genesis, the, the third chapter of Genesis, the seed of the woman will crush the head of the snake. If you don't have that memorized, that should be just off the top of your head. Genesis 3.15, the seed of the woman will crush the head of the snake. I'll put enmity between you and the snake, and your offspring and his offspring, and the seed of the woman will crush the head of the snake. That's important because the seed of the woman who crushes the head of the snake is Jesus. He makes the claim of himself multiple times in the New Testament. He is the seed of the woman 
who crushes the head of sin, who rescues us from darkness, and who brings us life. Indeed, he is the substance, the law, the prophets, the history, the Old Testament is the shadow. Galatians, Paul is going to say that the law is a schoolmaster or a tutor to drive us to Christ or to educate us about Christ, to point us to Jesus. That's what the law is for. So when we see the world around us and everyone trying to be right on their own and trying to do the right thing on their own and failing miserably, not because the circumstances of the world have ruined it, but because they can't. They choose not to. We choose not to. We choose to embrace what is wicked over what is good. When we look around and we see the world struggling to obey a law, one that they've either written themselves or one that they're following from some religious practice, we ought to have great pity for them because they don't see the reality. And we should be screaming about the reality of Jesus Christ to everyone we meet all the time. They should see in us a beacon of freedom from sin and death that lights the world. So, verse 2, otherwise they would not have ceased. So here's his argument for the conscience. If the, if, if the Old Testament sacrifices, if the religious practices, if following the law could save you, they wouldn't have continued to offer sacrifices. Since the worshippers having once been clean, would no longer have any consciousness of sin. If they were cleaned completely, they wouldn't have, their, their conscience would, would prove and testify to them that they have been clean. Verse 3, but in the sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins every year, for it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. So let's pause just right there for a minute and, and recognize the mercy of God. God is so merciful that for a time he accepted the blood of bulls and goats. A bull, not as valuable as a person. A goat, definitely not as valuable as a person. And yet, God saw fit to grant mercy, to say, I will forgive for a time, through the blood of a cow, through the blood of a goat. What a merciful and patient and loving God who said, this, this picture of a bull and a goat is just a picture of Jesus. But Hebrews, if you will bring your first offerings before me, every year we will give you the same picture. And every year I will point you to Jesus every single year, giving you the picture of bulls and goats, if you will only trust that I am Jehovah Mekodesh Kim, the Lord who sanctifies you. That's in Exodus chapter 33, right after Moses gets the whole law. He's got the law in front of him and... and God tells him, you will work for six days. On the seventh day, you will remember that all your work, all your sacrifices, all your religious practices mean nothing. 
except to point you to the fact that I am the Lord who sanctifies you and cleanses you. I clean you. So God in his mercy and grace allowed those people who were struggling, allowed us who were struggling to get things right, to struggle well and to have him grant us salvation. Verse 5, consequently, when Christ came into the world, he said, sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sin offerings, you have taken no pleasure. Then he said, behold, I have come to do your will, O God, as it is written of me in the scroll of the book. Now, what's wild about this quote here is that it's taken from the Old Testament. Taken from Psalm 40. And did you notice what he said? When Christ came into the world, he said, Psalm 40. Okay, if you're not catching that, that's about 600 years before Jesus shows up in physical form. Six, seven hundred, somewhere around there. Psalm 40 was written back then. Jesus walks into the world physically first century, and proclaims, these are my words. These are my words. I said them. They're mine. From the beginning of time, this has been the plan. This is not plan B. This is not a mistake. Jesus is not quoting something out of thin air, going, oh, I saw that in a book once. I'm going to quote it and say it's me. No, it's him. And he validates it by saying, a body you have prepared for me. I am here in physical form. We talked about at worship night, he is the image of the invisible. That should give us pause. Talked about this a little bit on Friday, that that you can't see what's invisible. There is no image for invisibility. By definition, invisible is without image. And yet Jesus makes visible that which is invisible. It's amazing. So body you've prepared for me in burnt offerings and sacrifices, you have uh, taken no pleasure. Then I said, behold, I have come to do your will, O God, as it is written of me in the scroll of the book. When he said above, you have neither desired nor taken pleasure in sacrifice and offerings and burnt offerings and sin offerings. These are offered according to the law. Then he added, behold, I have come to do your will. He does away with the first in order to establish the second. And by that will, by God's will that Jesus came to do, by that will we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Jesus sanctifies you because God wants to do it. Sanctifies you because God wants to do it. It is God's will that you would trust and know and know him deeply and see him and delight in him. This is God's will. Isn't it great to think that God's will includes you being saved? 
I mean, if you read the book of Romans, right, you can read all the way up to chapter 3, verse 20. By the works of the law, no man will be saved. And if you stop there, God would still be righteous and holy and just in everything. But there's 13 more chapters in that book that all deal with you being redeemed. Likewise, here, God could stop without having rescued you, and yet it is his will that you would know him. It is his love that you would you would be rescued by him, that you would see him. Oh, that you would see the invisible and rejoice. And every priest, verse 11, and every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. And the Holy Spirit also bears witness to us. So we have the first, first witness, the conscience, that testifies against us that the law is inadequate. Testifies against us that the law is inadequate. And once you are redeemed, that conscience has been washed clean, and we rest in the constant assurance and reminder of the one-time sacrifice, once for all, Jesus Christ made to rescue us. So you, as a Christian, have a new relationship to sin in that it bothers you when it happens, and in that you have the victory over it and are able to not do it. You are able to say no to sin as a Christian. As a non-Christian, you're not able to say no to sin. Indeed, even your righteous deeds are as sin before the Lord. But as a Christian, you have been redeemed and clean and made, washed clean by the blood of the Lamb that you would be able to perform and do good works that were set and prepared beforehand for you. So, we see the second witness here in verse 15. The Holy Spirit also bears witness to us, for after saying, this is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, declares the Lord, I will put my laws on their hearts and write them on their minds. Then he adds, I will remember their sins no more and their lawless deeds no more. Where there is forgiveness of these, there is no longer any offering for sin. The Holy Spirit then comes as our second testimony. In Jeremiah, we have this great passage that he's quoting here. Jeremiah 31, um, verse 33 through, through 34. And if you go back and read that, this is a little bit of homework for you. One of the fun things you can do in Jeremiah chapter 31 that will just lighten your soul a bit is to underline every place where it says, I will. Where God says, I will do these things. Or every action God claims that he's going to do, put an I will in front of it. And then just read that out loud to yourself. You will find that God has done the work to rescue you. 
that God has done the work to save your eternal soul. That God has redeemed and saved you. I will. So the conscience bears witness, and the Holy Spirit here brings the evidence of that witness. This is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, declares the Lord. And here's the two things he does. One, he puts their laws on your heart. He puts the law of God on your heart. A Christian has a uniquely shaped heart, a uniquely molded heart, that then looks at the world, sees it, and there is a conscience-pricked heart that is molded, guided, and directed, and trained by the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit trains our hearts to hear, follow, and obey. When you are facing a dilemma, oh Christian, when you are facing a dilemma, and there is a hesitancy in your spirit, heart, mind, whatever, whatever word you want to use, they all mean the same thing, by the way. We're just using different words. Whatever it is that you want to use there, when there's a hesitancy and you need to wait, then turn to the Scripture and pursue the Holy Spirit's guidance through the Word of God. Because we know from the Scripture itself that that's how He speaks. All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for training, reproof, correction, and training in righteousness that the man of God might be approved for every good work. Every good work. Every good work. Everything is guided by Scripture. By whether or not Scripture says it. The Holy Spirit trains, guides, directs, leads you through a constant relationship through the Scripture. Now, I want to be clear. I'm not saying that miraculous things don't happen occasionally. What I am saying is, if you have to have a miraculous thing happen, then you probably weren't paying close enough attention. Because the Holy Spirit has been walking through His Word always. And you can find Him in the Word every moment of every day. And He is there. So, you will be a much more powerful saint if you seek him through the scripture. I will put my laws on their hearts and I will write them on their minds. God says, I will form you to be different. Now, these are present tense active things that God does. When you become a Christian, you don't become an old saint overnight. You don't, you don't suddenly have the wisdom of Solomon overnight. You don't, that's not how it works. I know that we all wish we were superheroes that just got endowed with special powers. That's not how it works. This takes practice and effort. It takes time and work. You become an old saint through disciplined lifestyle Christianity in which you are feeding over the word constantly, living a life of worship constantly, fighting against and, and, and fighting with sin, pushing it off of you, and engaging in community and following the Lord together, this is how you become an old saint. You don't become an old saint by going to bed one night because you prayed some magic prayer. That's not how it works. You become an old saint by working hard and learning what it means to be a saint. So we press forward following the Holy Spirit. And he says, I will remember their sins 
no more. And their lawless deeds, no more. Where there is forgiveness of these, there is no longer any offering for sin. The Holy Spirit brings the evidence before God, saying this person is clean. This person is clean. So listen, you stand before God now with two witnesses. You have an intercessor in Jesus Christ, the high priest, who stands before you with Christ, who stands before you, an advocate before the Father in Jesus Christ, and then you have two additional witnesses. One, your conscience having been cleaned by the blood of Jesus Christ, and then two, the Holy Spirit witnesses and testifies. This is mine, and I have brought evidence to it, and that if you look at his life and his heart and his mind, it is conformed to the law of God. That heart and mind are being changed and transformed to be more and more like Jesus. I will put my law on their hearts and I will write them on their minds. These are people who have been conformed to Jesus Christ. This is what it means to be a Christian. That when you are seen by God, he sees that you have been transformed. And when the world looks at us, they see that we have been transformed and altered. That is what it means to be a Christian, and the Holy Spirit testifies to that. Now we go on to verse 19 here, and it says, Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh, since we have a great high priest over the house of God, so here he gives you, he's going to give you applications here, and there are three of them. The three of them are that we would draw near, two that we would hold fast, and three that we would stir each other up. These are fun applications. We're going to look at them more again in future sermons, but today we're going to look briefly at all three of them. And before he gets to the application, he gives you three things that are because. So because of these three things, we have these three applications. I love it when authors in the New Testament are this straightforward. This doesn't happen often. Usually they say, like many pastors, in my concluding point, and then they give you five more points. Right? That's usually Paul's way of writing. The author of Hebrews here is very organized. And look at what he does. He says, therefore, one, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus. First, remember the picture of the tabernacle. The curtain is torn, and you can see the master. You can see the master. Remember that illustration that we've been holding on to, that there was an artist who was commissioned to build a room and paint a painting, and he had to do the same strokes every day, constantly, on this giant canvas, and he's doing the same strokes every day, and there were specific rules. He had to put a table in the room with some bread on it every day that he made fresh, and then cut into 12 loaves and put on, on the table, and then he had to put a lampstand over here, and the lampstand lit the whole room, and then he had to put an incense altar by a curtain that was at the back, and then behind the curtain he had to put all these holy things and a throne. He had to put all this stuff back there in the back, and he's doing this thing not knowing what he's painting, but following the strokes that he's been given to follow, and he does it day after day after day, and it becomes year after year after year, and then the master walks in the room, 
and he sees him for the first time and he walks through and he realizes the bread was a picture of the master and the light was a picture of the master and the incense altar was a picture of the master. And he walks through and he tears the curtain down the middle and he sits down at the throne, turns around and says, there's more to see. Remember that illustration that we've been enjoying through this book that, that he laid out in the Old Testament the picture of Jesus Christ. And Jesus has come and now sat down on the throne, opened the curtain and said, there's more for you to see. Come on in. You get to see me. And all of these things were shadow. Now you get to see the substance and you get to see a glimpse of heaven. And indeed, you're invited in to see even more. Because he is that great and that powerful. He has torn through. He has torn the curtain. So first we have confidence we we can enter the holy place because of Jesus' sacrifice. Then verse 20, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain that is through his flesh. And since we have a great high priest over the house of God. So he, he opens this way. This is the way to life. This is a living Way. Remember what Genesis says? He put an angel in the garden to do what? Guard the what? The way. He put an angel to guard the way to the tree of life. And what does Jesus say about himself in the Gospel of John? I am the way. I am the way. It has been guarded since the beginning of time. The one and only way to the tree of life, the only way to get eternal life, to have life abundant and free, and to escape the clutches of death on this earth. The only way is in Jesus. He is the way to life. There is life in him. And then third, the third reason for these instructions is that Jesus is our high priest. He is our high priest. His presence is is here, and it is permanent. Remember what we saw about the high priest. He doesn't die. This one does not die. Jesus does not die, and that means that your salvation is secure because you have run to the city of refuge. Numbers 35, you have run to the city of refuge in Jesus Christ, and because he is alive eternally, you will never die. Because you will never have to suffer the wrath and punishment of the law because that has been paid by your great high priest who stands in your defense before God, before the law, and before this world. You want to know where your value is? Consider the fact that the eternal God of creation, the Lord of all things, has decided by his will to rescue you. By his will to rescue you. So since we can enter the holy places, since the way is life in Jesus, and since Jesus is our great high priest, let's look at these uh, encouragements here. Let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, 
with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. So he says here first, let's draw near. Let's move near. This is an active moving towards him. Now, supreme, majestic creator of all things stands before you. I understand the hesitancy of wanting to kind of stave back a little bit. I get it. But we are to draw near. We are to move near to him. Not to press back. Not to move away, but to draw near to him. To press into Christ. Just briefly, by way of application, if you don't know how to do that, this is really simple. There's a couple things that I'm going to tell you over and over and over as we read this that you just, you just need to get a grip and understand that that's what I'm saying. It's, it's simple. One, read your Bible. Two, engage in the community of faith. It's that simple. You want to draw near to Christ, engage with other Christians, read your Bible, engage with other Christians consistently and constantly. This is simple application. Draw near to Christ. Let us draw near with true hearts in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience, and our bodies washed with pure water. If you are clean by Jesus Christ, you are not going to want to go wallow in mud. I once heard a, a pastor talk about pigs and sheep and how pigs go wallow in mud and sheep don't. I just, just want to be clear. I've been around livestock. That's not true. Sheep are muddy, gross, nasty, smelly, stinky animals. But sheep aren't supposed to wallow in mud. That's the issue that we see in nature. Sheep aren't supposed to wallow in mud. In fact, Sheep, for all practical purpose, sheep, they're dumb. You have to push sheep around to get them to eat well. Or they'll continue to eat in the same place until they start chewing dirt. And you know what happens when they start chewing dirt? They keep doing it. They just chew the dirt. If you let sheep go wherever they want, they're going to end up in briar patches and in mud, and they're going to be gross, and they're going to hurt themselves. Sheep need shepherds. Pigs, on the other hand, pretty smart creatures. That they know what they want. They lay in the mud, and they're gross, and they smell equally bad. They lay in the mud. They're doing what they're supposed to do, wallow in the mud. But, but sheep weren't designed to do that. So when a sheep wallows in the mud, you have to clean it off. You have to get it to stop wallowing in the mud. You have to push it out into the pasture. Some shepherds even have dogs that help bite the sheep to get them to go, get them to move. You know what the Bible calls us? Not pigs. Sheep. Over and over and over, we're referred to as sheep. Isn't that comforting? My sheep hear my voice, and they know me. That's a beautiful, beautiful Beautiful phrase. My sheep hear my voice and they know me. And they come when I call. Sheep are not clean and wonderful and great 
because they are inherently clean and wonderful and great. They are clean and wonderful and great because they have a good shepherd who has walked alongside them, who has guided them, who has taken care of them, who continues to work in them, who continues to lead them from pasture to pasture, who continues to protect them from the wolves, who continues to provide for their needs. That's why sheep are wonderful. That's why sheep look clean, because they've got a good shepherd. So you, Christian, have a good shepherd who you are called to draw near to and to remember that you are clean from an evil conscience, not because you did something right, not because you chose something that was good and everybody else chose something that was bad. That's not what happened. What happened was the good shepherd came and took you and made you clean. And This is why you can draw near with confidence. So we draw near with confidence, pressing into knowing Christ. Oh, drawing near can even mean more than just this simple reading and and being involved. It can can be more than that. Drawing near can be the release of your heart to express worship to God. I've told you, I told you earlier as we were studying in Hebrews that at one point in history, Christianity produced the greatest artwork known to man. Music, art, expression, the greatest artwork known to man. And why was that? Because we saw the greatest creator. We saw that which is greatest in existence and we worshipped it. We worshipped him. And so we couldn't help but overflow with expression towards him. Oh, fill yourself with beauty. The beauty that is true. The beauty of Jesus Christ. The beauty of God Almighty. Read the passages of Scripture where it describes His presence and His glory and lay on them. Rest on them. Put them in your heart and in your mind that you would see Him daily and thereby draw near to His character and who He is and find life. Value the change that has been wrought in your soul through the washing of the water Jesus Christ. Verse 23, the second command here, let us hold fast to let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. So second command here, hold fast or grab tightly to the confession without wavering, without bending. We believe Jesus Christ is Savior and Lord and we hold that tight. There is no other Lord. There is nothing else that can save. We hold that tight. When we face trials and tribulation in this world, we say he is Lord. When we feel convicted or feel confronted, we say he is Savior. And I am his. He is Savior and Lord. And we press into that holding tight to that confession without wavering. And why do we not waver? Because he who promised is faithful. We don't waver because it's not based on our strength or our our efforts that we keep this. It's not up to you to keep it. It's because he promised it and he's faithful and he will keep it. It is only to you to follow. You're a sheep. You're a sheep. He is the good shepherd. 
and he will lead you to green pastures, and he will lead you beside still waters, and he will take care of your needs. And sometimes, yes, sometimes he will break your leg and carry you that you would follow. He will provide. He will protect. He will take care of you. He is the good shepherd. Then 23, here in verse 23, we've got the, or verse 24, we've got the last uh, exhortation here. And let us consider how to stir one another up to love and good works. Let us consider how to stir one another up. I love that. I had a, a, one of the things I tell people in premarital counseling is you keep your dipper in your own bucket. In premarital counseling, I'll tell you, you keep your dipper... No, it doesn't make any sense. Just wait till I explain it. You keep your dipper... And it was told to me by a kind of hick pastor. So I'm going to say it. I'm not making fun of hicks. This guy was wise. But I am making fun of hicks. So he had a he had an illustration of a bucket. He said, each of you got your own bucket. And you got a stirrer. And he said, you can dip, you can dip it in, in your bucket, and you can serve it to the other person. You're welcome to do that. You can dip it and serve it, dip it and serve it, dip it and serve it. You can stir your own bucket, but you keep your dipper in your own dang bucket. Each of you got a bucket, and you dip and you serve. Now, now that was a very funny illustration to me, because I've never heard of a dipper in a bucket, and I don't know what he's talking about, except that I went to a restaurant once where they walked around with these massive buckets, and they served you out of these buckets. Okra, macaroni and cheese, side dishes. You'd walk around, they'd serve it in these huge, these huge ladles, and they would just ladle out. You know, it was one of those kinds of restaurants where you knew that your arteries were going to clog within five minutes of walking in the door, and you were going to be happy about it. So we um, we have this idea that we ought to stir and and do our own buckets, right? But but the great thing about the Christian faith is that we are charged to stir each other up. Which means you take your dipper and you share from your bucket to other people. You are filling yourself up as per the first two, as per drawing near and holding fast the confession. You are doing those two things. And the third thing is that you would share from your bucket with everybody in the congregation, that you would be bringing something to the community of faith that would stir us up. That would stir us up, and together we would be stirred up or agitated to do good works. Agitated to do good works. Let us consider how to stir one another up to love and good works, that you would stir one another. That through your personal discipline, faith, and effort, and then combining that with the community, we would be stirred up to love one another and to love others. And that good works would just be natural. They would just flow out of us because we are together stirring one another up. This is the last exhortation, and it comes with a bit of a side comment here in verse 25. Not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. So, 
He says, let us consider how to stir one another up to love and good works. And then he says, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some. So this is, this is one of the things that's tragic in American Christianity. See, we think of Christianity as a lone wolf thing. It's my thing. I'm the Christian. I'm pursuing God. It's my relationship with him. And indeed, it is your relationship with him. It's not necessarily wrong, but Christianity is not a lone wolf religion. Over and over and over in Scripture, you're told to count yourself as part of the body, as part of the community. And listen, I love you. You can't stir me up if I don't see you. It's that simple. You can't stir each other up if you're not seeing each other. And you know this because we have members here who you don't see. And I just, I, I want to be real transparent and real honest. When you have a pastor like me who cares about stirring you up, and you don't see me, you just make more work for me. I love you, but this means I have to call you. If I don't see you, all of a sudden I have to go do more work. And all of you know that I will. But if we don't see each other, we can't stir each other up. It's that simple. And those people that you don't see, don't make me do all the work. Go call them. And I, you know, I have to, I have to brag on you. I, there is not a Sunday that goes by where somebody doesn't go, hey, where was so-and-so? And I go, I don't know. And they go, well, I'll call them. Give me their phone number. That is awesome. I have never had that happen in a church that I've served at, ever. Every church that I've ever served in, when somebody misses, they come to me and they go, well, you should call that person. You should go tell that person. You should go visit. You going to go visit them? And I go, I guess. I'm tired. But you guys do a great job. I just want to commend you. You do a great job of that. Keep it up. Keep it up. Call each other. Drive each other nuts. Bother each other. We're commanded to do so in Scripture, to stir one another up. You can't stir people up who don't see. Now, the second thing to draw some encouragement with is that this was obviously a problem in the first church. This is nothing new. This is nothing new. These problems we face are not new to us. If they were new, it wouldn't be addressed in the first century by some random author who was writing a book called Hebrews. Right? It's addressed because it's not new. So we stir one another up to love and good works. And we'll talk more about these instructions and things in January. Um, I know. For, heat, for the month of December, we're going to be looking at Old Testament texts. But in January, we'll talk more about these instructions but I just want to encourage you today, as we close, to remember the witness of the Holy Spirit has done these things in your life so that you would draw near to God, so that you would hold fast the confession of faith without wavering, because he doesn't waver, and so that you would stir each other up. Oh, that we would be a people who are refreshing the world around us. Who when people encounter us, they feel alive and lit up because we have shared from our own spiritual development and we are stirring one another up to love and good works. Oh, that people would see us and go, those people are weird, but you know what? They love well.
they love better than anyone else. Oh, that we would be defined by the love of Jesus Christ. Indeed, that what Jesus says of his disciples would be true of us. They will know you by your love. They will know you 